This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story Revisited. All this week, we're returning to special stories from the year that are worth another listen. And over the three years of the show, we've spoken to hundreds of people, but no one quite like Josephine Inkpin, who is the first transgender priest to be inducted into a mainstream church in Australia. We're coming up on the church, and out the front, there's one of those signs which you can kind of rearrange to say what you like and it says celebrating LGBTIQ lives. Just underneath some text of Pitt Street Uniting Church. In February, producer Jake Morecambe and I headed to the Sydney CBD to Pitt Street Uniting Church. There's also a rainbow welcoming mat at the front of the church. Hello, Joe. How are you going? Good, I'm Laura. Yep. Um, I wonder if you can give us a, a short tour. Yeah, sure. At the time, the Morrison government's religious discrimination bill and a debate over whether religious schools should be able to expel gay or transgender students had reached fever pitch, dividing the Liberal Party and religious communities. While the bill was shelved by the Morrison government until after the election and Labor has now gone back to the drawing board for a new religious discrimination bill, this conversation with Josephine about her life the toxic political debate about transgender people and the place of queer people in the church remains incredibly relevant. I mean, I'm hardly the first queer person to be a minister here, but I am the first trans person, which is another step. So for us, it's not a question of whether or not you're gay or trans or whatever, but, you know, how can you be the best possible gay person or person who happens to be gay or a transgender person, what is the way in which you can flourish the best rather than, you know, worrying about whether or not you fit with God, because clearly you do. It's sort of like, but what's the next stage? You know, what's the, you're not a problem at all. Actually, you're a gift. And so how do we affirm that gift and enable that to flourish in the world? And that's what church should be doing for everybody. That's coming up in a minute. So sound-wise, Jake, do Somewhere. we right in the middle is probably not great, right? Yeah. <laughs> Walking into Pitt Street Uniting Church is a unique experience. There's lots of the things that you would expect in an old church: dark wood, high ceilings, and stained glass windows. Seating isn't always as comfortable as it might be. <laughs> but then there's also some things that are unexpected, like a row of plastic rainbow flags wrapped around a pillar near the entrance. As you walk in, there's so many different symbols to try and make people feel comfortable. Yes. There's the flags, there's the exactly. acknowledgement there That's as right. well of country. That's right. Well, we try and just like, you know, not sort of hit people between the eyes with politics. I sat with Josephine and audio producer Jake Morecambe in a quiet corner at the back of the church and she began to tell us about her childhood, growing up in England in an Anglican family. Yes, well, I grew up in um, a sleepy rural space in England and um, in a loving family in the days when really there was no language or understanding of gender diversity at all. I had to sort of 
experience when at first day at school and we put in the whistle blue and we're in the playground and we got put into two lines and I got stuck into one line with one group of people and and then when we went in and we were told boys do this girls do that and all that that was the world you grew up in really and um I was saying we got taught the gender binary before we got taught arithmetic or how to read and things really you know I mean it was that sort of basic. Josephine joined the Anglican Church in 1987 as a priest and it was around this time that she fell in love with Penny Jones, who was also in the church. Penny was actually one of the first women ordained into the Church of England. What was your conversation like with Penny, your, your partner, early on? How Did you guys have open communication about? Yes. Well, she did find some, you know, items of lingerie and that sort of thing and started to ask questions. But interestingly, she didn't think I was in a relationship with another woman or anything. And she was sort of intrigued and supportive to me in terms of dressing and that sort of thing. When they emigrated to Australia in 2007, the first transgender priest had just come out in England. And Josephine watched from afar as she settled into what she calls a more conservative Christian culture in Australia. She decided to stay quiet and to keep things between her and Penny. Because she could see when I shut it away when we moved to Australia particularly, that it was actually hurting me. That, um, And she would say, well, where's Josephine gone? Was there a sense that you were concerned about the culture here and what the reaction might be? Yes. I remember ringing up a counsellor and saying, I can't do this, it's impossible, you know, no, you know, I'll just lose everything. And she did say to me, um, well, surely there must be some people in your church. You're looking on the you know, too dark side. And I said, well, you don't really know churches, do you really? <laughs> but she was partly right. Josephine came out as trans in 2017, 10 years after arriving in Australia. It was a huge life change. And one of the toughest things was navigating how to tell her church in Brisbane and the Anglican Educational College where she taught. To get to the point of coming out, I've been around a while and done all sorts of different things in different quarters. There's no way I could have sort of just done this quietly. You know, we sent something out when I announced it to my colleagues to begin with in the college and then to my students. And then at the same time, the diocese of the church sent out a letter saying that I would now be known as Josephine and, and, and with some sportive materials about helping people to understand because a lot of people, clergy and lay people, wouldn't necessarily understand this and it would be a bit puzzling for them, information to help them understand what was going on. So, Who did those letters go to? Oh, to all the clergy in the, in the area, So, which was very well done, actually. Although the Anglican Church got a few struggles in Australia on these things, I have to say personally and on that level, the diocese, you know, the bishops were quite supportive in my area, not in some other areas. Once the letters went out, Josephine started having some unexpected interactions with people in her church community. You know, there was one older woman, um, particularly, it was a wonderful woman, and she was absolutely delighted because she sort of indicated she'd got a grandson who was gay and I think two great-grandchildren as well. And she just thought it was wonderful, exciting that, you know, you've got a queer minister as well as a... <laughs> family. <laughs> Had she so spoken about that to you before? No, not before. This is the wonderful thing. I mean... Did she just come up to you at the church? Like, what? how did that conversation come about where she... Yeah, well, she was just... Again? She was very sort of enthusiastic. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, when I came out to my students as well in the theological college, and one or two did say, and there was a church warden we had, and she said, well, we knew that all along. It was <laughs> like she sort of worked it out pretty much. <laughs> Bula. 
It's wonderful to be here this afternoon and to be part of this historical and momentum occasion for Pitt Street Uniting Church. My name At the end of 2020, Josephine was chosen as the new minister for the Pitt Street Uniting Church in Sydney, the first transgender priest to be inducted into a mainstream church in Australia. Her and Penny moved down from Queensland so that she could take the role, and the community went out of their way to make her feel comfortable. We now declare that Reverend Dr Josephine MacDonald Ingpin to be inducted into the congregation of Pitt Street Uniting Church. I mean, it was absolutely marvellous when we had my induction, as it were, because we had, a lot of people came, lots of trans people came, for example, who, as they said, hadn't darkened the door. I think they thought the roof would fall in or something because they were supportive and, it, you know, <laughs> lots of them were in tears. I mean, lots of Uniting Church people absolutely were thrilled as well, you see, because it, it's a gift for the church. That's the best acceptance and welcome I've ever had in any of my liturgical events. <laughs> Exciting indeed. This is a new thing. The Aaronic blessing. So let us all bless Joe. Thank you. <laughs> but it's unusual when you get amazing leaders of the trans community come who, you know, wouldn't, I say, they might have been brought up in the church, but they wouldn't go near it normally just that it's part of the cultural shift that's happening. But when it came to the broader Christian community and just the broader community, Josephine knew there was a lot of work to do. When you're a prep, especially in the religious space, I mean, you're pretty alert to <laughs> what's going to hurt you and what's going to be a free, a helpful thing. But, I mean, it's gone on for so long. I mean, this, like a friend of mine said, I think they, he worked out with marriage equality as well. It's been about six, seven years, I think, over the summer of having to write submissions. And that's horrendously um, tiring. Thank you. Please be seated. I've spoken at... I think there was a Senate choir a few years ago I spoke at in Brisbane. I've done, put in submissions for this and that. There's, there's bills in New South Wales Parliament as well. And it, it's a constant sort of backdrop. After the vote for marriage equality, Josephine had sensed a shift. Discontent was brewing in some sections of the church. I mean, I think that was a big... Um, watershed, wasn't it, the marriage equality thing? And most Christians voted yes. Um, you know, ordinary Christians, um, but churches are taking a little while to catch on. And some of them have gone into retreat mode and, you know, defensiveness and therefore wanted to shore up their privileges. And that's what we've got with the Religious Discrimination Bill, I think. It, it's a response to the fact they've actually lost the public argument, really. For Josephine, the push for a Religious Discrimination Act from within the church, which could see new powers introduced that discriminate against the queer community, felt personal. You mentioned that you feel that sometimes people within the church don't believe that you belong here. Do you feel like the bill is, is part of that? that yes, part of that push? absolutely. They're trying to shore up what they've got, I think, and, and to get rid of the... <laughs> I feel sometimes they're really trying to expel people like me from from Christian spaces and then they, then it's obvious that, you know, what they say is right. Whereas whilst there are gay and trans and other queer people in churches, we give the lie to the fact they own God, you know, that's the thing. <laughs> wow. 
And my God, let's listen to the people who know about transformation, who know, who've had to give up everything, as many trans people have, and have suffered, and have come through. We may just be part of the answer, not just a subject for pity, or compassion, or even solidarity, but we are part of the blessing, for each and every one of us is part of this. So I thank you so much. Next, how a tumultuous debate in Parliament was felt by Josephine and other transgender and queer people in the church. The Full Story Summer Series explores some of the quirks of Australian life. Stories that make you laugh. Do you really think that, like, <laughs> you tell your parents, like, when I grow up, I want to do comedy? No. Think. Jane Austen was basically Pakistani, I determined. And experience. I think I find synthesis endlessly mysterious. Listen to the Full Story Summer Series from the 2nd of January. A core part of the bill is a protection for statements of belief, mm. even if they are discriminatory. What type of language or what type of circumstances could you see happening that someone can have protection if it's the statement of belief to say something transphobic, etc.? Yes. Well, where do you stop? You know, I mean, sort of like, I mean, there's people who believe that, you know, women are the subordinate to, to men. There's people who believe that to justify discrimination against people with disabilities as well. You could draw something from there. You could argue that from the Bible, as people used to do, that slavery is just about OK, so therefore I could defend my right to have a slave. Perhaps <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you could extend it on that. If it's on the basis of this is who checks it, and actually the Christian church in the big history, there are some sort of essential statements of faith about the nature of God. But in fact, Attitudes to marriage or to other sorts of forms of relationship, ethical issues have, have evolved over time and they're quite varied. So you're picking and choosing and the state is picking and choosing and interfering in religious life. Religious communities need to sort that out. Who's to say what, what's the statement of belief, really? Yes, yeah. it gives grounds for prejudices. And I think the churches, if when they operate in the public sphere, have to meet the needs of the public Otherwise, you have to say, why are you privileging religious people over against a bunch of racists who want to sort of uphold this thing because this happened? And if they call themselves religious, are they then allowed to get away with, you know, being, you know, outrageous about, well, God has given Australia to the white people or something, and that's our belief, and therefore we should be have schools and we can drive out anyone who doesn't believe that. That wouldn't be acceptable, so why is this? Do you believe there needs to be some discrimination protections for people of faith? I think there needs to be recognition of um, religious identity. I mean, if you're visibly of a particular faith, if you're wearing a Sikh turban and those sort of things, I can see that you might be discriminated against for your identity, which is more than just your ethnic identity. So there is a distinct area there. But that's a protection. It's not a sort of powers. And, so, and I think that probably is, a, for me, that's a missing element in, in sort of the human rights package that we have of legislation in. So there's a difference between belief and identity, isn't there? You know, sort of to protect somebody as a Jew or a Sikh or a Christian is another matter to give powers of particular interpretations of the Bible or the Quran or whatever and give people 
the power to justify that, especially when that's contested within the religious communities themselves. You know, so you can drum up a doctrine or something about transgender people, but that's only one group of Christians that hold that view. A lot of the rest of us don't hold that view. A lot of middle ground people don't hold that view. But the power will go to those groups if they have power in a very conservative institution which will then exclude us. So actually, in fact, it discriminates against people of faith as well as other people and other religions. Another big issue of contention was schools and the right mm. to, and an ongoing issue, the right to expel gay or transgender kids. What did you think of that debate? There was a lot of tough statements that were said in the public yes. eye. Did you have concern for kids that that you know? Yes, absolutely, because, I mean, I did quite a bit of work, actually, with schools in southern Queensland, and the Anglican schools have got a policy. They've got best practice model treatment for kids who are coming out as transgender, um, but they marry that with, uh, you know, with a clear Anglican ethos as well. So my view is the government should be encouraging schools to look and talk together about how you can actually do this in a positive way and hold those things together. But because the alternative is absolutely devastating and that I think that's the most upsetting thing for me because kids lives are at stake because a lot of those children in religious schools have no option because they're growing up in faith families of people maybe the parents don't really understand entirely and their church is telling them things as well they've got no option but to go to those schools and then the state is backing that sort of repression of those children and we know it's absolutely clear from all the research that's been done and not least for trans kids the statistics show clearly the devastating impact that not being able to be yourself has in terms of just survival, never mind self-harm or education and well-being. And so we've got to find ways to support those kids. So we're actually doing the wrong thing. You know, I mean, we've got this silly bill in... Uh, silly, it's, that's sort of an understatement. You know, in New South Wales Parliament at the moment, which wants to exclude any discussion of transgender realities and kids from New South Wales schools, and which would mean I couldn't go into school, for example, and talk to them. And that's the debate we're having instead of, and we've had that for a few years, and it seems as if it's getting worse, when we need to move into a thing, well, how do you support gender diverse children, especially transgender children, so they have the best health care, the best support, and they probably need teachers for that as well, transgender teachers who can model that for them as well. Do you personally know staff or kids mm. who would be affected if, you know, Yes. We have the right to expel staff and students yes. from gay or transgender. Yes, quite a few. And oh, I get people every so often, um, like recently there was someone wrote to me and of staff in a, in a Christian school and said, how do I come out in, in this environment? And, and I get that quite regularly. And sometimes you have to say, well, you may not be able to manage it. That must be tough telling some people that it's not necessarily safe for them, though. Yes. It's a balance, isn't it, between trying to encourage them which you know you've got to encourage people to find their, affirm their identity and also being careful, just as I had to be in terms of coming out myself, you know, building support networks so you don't immediately just sort of disappear. I mean, a, a, a friend of mine is, is a classic example of the way in which the Catholic Church says that it's never sort of sacked a teacher for being gay or trans, but we know this happens is dressed up in another way. So this person was a teacher, and when they said they needed to come out, they were told, you can't come back onto the Catholic campus. So they weren't actually officially sacked, but what had then happened was the Catholic Church, and because they're quite, in all the pressures of transition, the offer of having some money or some support to be paid out 
actually helped them at that stage. Only later did they realise, in effect, they'd pushed out, but it, it hadn't hit the headlines because they'd just been eased out, if you yeah. see what I mean. And, and there's a lot of stories that sometimes are even crueler than that. But in some places you can say yes. So, for example, because I've got links with and, and good relationships with Anglican Church in southern Queensland, uh, someone came out to me uh, just a few weeks ago, really, and wanted to come out. And, and I could say, well, actually, you know, you'll be fine. I happen to know the principal. They're super supportive, supportive to me. If you went to the schools commission there, they would support you, put them in touch with them, and, and it worked out fine. And people greeted them. It sounds like you're talking to people about some of these issues all around Australia a little bit. Yes, I'm yes. wondering just over the summer and in the past few weeks if you've had people reach out specifically about the bill, wanting to talk about it, having concerns. Yes. One trans friend of mine who's quite involved with the, ch- with the church community, which is actually quite a liberal one in Queensland, and she was saying, I don't think I can do this anymore. I just, I'm going to have to leave faith community. Was that because of conversations that had come up because of the bill? Yeah, it's just that sort of the pressure of trying to be a person of faith and be who you are as a trans or gay person and the the tension in that. And sometimes you feel you're in no person's land, no man's land. Do you know what I mean? That you've got two sets of people fighting over you. But in fact, you're on one side, actually. But you do sometimes get hit by friendly fire occasionally from, <laughs> from the LGBT community. Do you know what I mean? You get spread because you get caught as well, you know, that all religion should be extinguished or something, the most extreme. Right. So how could you be in a church where some people in that church yes. are pushing for this bill? Yes, that's right. So it becomes a very difficult thing. I, I mean, I think the LGBT community is actually mature in this debate because the right wing have tried to picture it as... God versus the gays and the old sort of framework of it. And it's easy to fall into that. So to understand the complexities of faith, that's what I've tried to say to people who are really quite secularist. I said, we might be mad as queer people of faith, but you need us because we understand. And at the very least, we can put a more than a spanner in the wheel. We can actually direct people back to the core business, which is about love and care for the vulnerable and those things, which diffuses a lot of the power of the right-wing Christian Uh, movement which goes on about religious rights and stuff. Last week my family said farewell to my nephew Ollie. No mother or father should have to endure this sight. When the bill was before Parliament, an MP spoke out about Mm. his nephew, how he'd recently lost his nephew who was gay. He was a beautiful, creative, courageous young man. He was loved and accepted by his parents, by his family, by his friends and community. His mum and dad are in anguish. We all are. He was gay, he was uncertain about his gender, and he struggled with his mental health. But now he's gone, and we're no longer going to be able to love and support him on his journey through life. Clearly, the love and acceptance of his family and friends were not enough. Did you see that speech and what did yes. you think about it? Yes, no, it's really powerful. But that's the reality, isn't it? That, you know, I had a friend who's a committed Christian trans person and their life ended tragically and... They're just one example of, of 
and I took their funeral and I'd never want to do that again. And that's the extreme, isn't it? But that's the reality. But the other reality is when people flourish and they fly, what will help us to do that? For Well, for trans people, it's putting in place the best measures. And unlike what the Assistant Attorney General says, medical surgeries actually help. I think we're having some trouble with the line to Amanda Stoker. We'll try and resolve that, but we are, of course, talking to her about the religious discrimination laws which the government promised to uh, deliver. But, but she's telling us now that that's a problem and that might contribute to statistics of distress. There's also other information um, of that kind that says things like, um, you know, many of the medical procedures that we provide to try and help transgender people um, feel much more... Um, mentally healthy aren't actually providing the improvements in, in health and wellbeing that are um, so uh, desirable. That, a whole for instance, lot of challenges. It's completely upside down when we need to be moving on to, well, how do we make that more accessible for people so that they live flourishing lives? So if you can see generally in trans lives and in gay lives where people are able to be free and express themselves, you can see love, joy and peace in a way that instead of all these repressed people of the past, the tragedies of people taking their lives and all that sort of thing. So if you could just, if you could get people to sort of switch onto this is great to see someone alive and happy. You know, you don't have to leave your church community or whatever, and your church community will be enriched or any other community, then that's where we need to get to. But at the moment, we're still in, for a lot of churches, still in the problem state, <laughs> whereas they've got the problem, not the, not us, you know. So in a matter of months, this bill may be back in the headlines. Some in the coalition have said that they want the bill restored to its original form, which would remove amendments preventing religious schools from expelling transgender kids specifically. Yeah, do you feel like this debate is really yes. going to kick back up after the election? Well, there seem to be a determined group of people, don't they? I mean, it, it's extraordinary in the Australian Christian lobby and people say, we don't want the bill amended you know, we, we won't have it. So in other words, what they really want are the repressive powers. They're not really interested in the things that we thought, you know, the religious identity stuff, protection, not really interested in that. And that's a cover for these other things. And I have to say, as a trans person, I, we've got a ceasefire at the moment. Right? So sometimes it feels like you're in a war. We've got a ceasefire. We've sort of, well, we didn't win the battle but we stop being crushed at that point. But we know they're coming back for us. So our job now is to sort of rest a bit and rally and, and hopefully work out ways we can move forward. Great, that's all we need. Wonderful. Great. I can press stop on the recording now. Thank you. Excellent. That was Josephine Inkpin. Journalist Selena Ribeiro originally interviewed Josephine for an article titled It Has Been a Gruesome Week, Australia's First Transgender Priest on Shame, Love and Identity. I really do recommend you read it. It also has some beautiful photographs of the church and Josephine and Penny together. In Australia, the Crisis Support Service Lifeline is 131114. Other international helplines can be found at www.befrienders.org. We've linked to those on the Full Story page as well. This episode was produced by Jake Morecambe, Carla Arnold and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design. Mixing by Daniel Simo. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Mattignoni, Gabrielle Jackson and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. OK, catch you tomorrow.
Hey, Laura Murphy Oates here. If you're enjoying Full Story, I think you'll really like another podcast we make here at Guardian Australia called Book It In. On Book It In, some of Australia's favourite authors open up about the ideas behind their books in personal and thought-provoking conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. This week, two-time world champion debater Bo So on how to perfect the art of a good argument. I think if cleverness is being able to argue effectively, wisdom is being able to choose and when to argue and for how long to argue a point. Subscribe to Book It In Now on your favourite podcast player and listen to this episode with Bo So on Thursday. <laughs> 